Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Emily, it's my favorite part of the week. It's the time that I get to record unbelievable episodes with your good self. Today, it's Q&A. There's lots of good questions people have raised in the Facebook group as well as hit up Emily personally on her Instagram. So we're looking forward to answering all these and just thrashing them out. There's actually some controversial ones in there, one about the how to break up with a mortgage broker. So I've got my thoughts around that and I'm sure you have as well, Emily, because I've been through a couple over the journey. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. Right, let's kick off with Jamie Lee Orth. Thanks for your question in the Facebook group, Jamie Lee. I'm a single lady who has worked hard for a deposit and last week I got approval for a pre-approval. Well done. Now I'm completely and utterly full of anxiety about starting to look. The realization that this mortgage is going to be all on me and me alone freaks me out. The mental load feels like a lot and more than I thought. Has anyone else done the same thing and feel the same way? Just looking for any advice. So I'm not female but I was single when I first bought a property. And yes, it was full of anxiety and it was full of nervousness and apprehension and should I be doing this and and is everyone else doing it? No. So why am I doing it? And and does it feel like the right thing? What if I buy the wrong thing and it's a lemon and it's like, I think we default to the negative in a lot of cases, don't we? And think, is is this going to ruin my life? As opposed to thinking logically half the time and, and saying, well, yeah, it's going to work out all right. I've done the research and I've, I've, uh, I understand my cash flow and I understand what it'll potentially rent for and, and away I go. What are, you, what are your thoughts? I think the biggest thing is just the mental capacity required to purchase as a single person, mm. but also actually as a couple or in a joint venture, it's that thing that you and I touch on a lot, John, with you know the podcast, but also in our own professions. Are you mentally ready to make a purchase? And I think the foundations of that, it's a scary thing, but the growth zone of anything in life comes from that feeling of being uncomfortable. And so you almost need to use it as a signal that you're heading in the right direction. You're feeling a bit unsure, a bit uncomfortable, but still feel good about it. Mm. It's a good sign and you really need to take it and run with it, but also trust the fact that you've done the tick box items of getting the pre-approval. You know what your life looks like if mortgage repayments were to increase. You've got all those things set out to mitigate your risk and you might not take on um, as much risk as the next person might and that's okay. But I think there's a lot to be said for being mentally ready to purchase a property. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know about you, but as I get older, and, and obviously not as old as I am, but I, I get more apprehensive about buying big ticket items like property. I think when I was younger, I was probably a little bit uh, blasé about it. But but as I get older, there's maybe more importance because I've got kids and, and, and a family and mortgage and whatever else. So um, I, I don't know. And, and, and it, 
also around the joint venture stuff, like you mentioned about purchasing as a single person, uh, I I maybe feel that if I buy on my own and I stuff it up, it's up, it, it's on me. Mm. If we're if we do a joint venture and we stuff it up, it's on both of us. So there's actually it depends on which way you. You, you frame it in your own mind. Yeah, taking full responsibility for something can be daunting but also empowering. You mm. know, like this is me, this is on me and you, it goes one way or the other, I think. Uh, but like I said before, when you have all the due diligence lined up, you've got the pre-approval in place and you know your numbers, I think knowing your numbers is just so key in a yeah, purchase. Absolutely. Um, you should take security and comfort in that, that you've, you're doing the right things. Yeah, just some of the comments that I want to read out from from her post. Uh, Monica says, same here, when I bought my first place, I did make sure I had income protection in place that will index up until retirement if I need it, ever need it. So that's a really good reassurance to say, well, what's our worst case scenario? I lose my job. Okay, I've got income protection. Um, so we're always looking to the negative, but then finding an answer to it. Okay, if it's an investment and the tenant moves out, can I get another one? So what's the vacancy rate? If, if someone um, causes malicious damage to the property. Uh, I've got insurance. So we've got that sort of covered. Yes, it's not ideal and there's paperwork and admin associated with that, but I will get through, I'll get by. Um, and, and I think it's that case of not having to sell. So understanding your cash flow, isn't it? And, and just knowing that you can handle the mortgage, you can handle interest rate rises, you can handle vacancy, you can handle maintenance, you can handle job loss because you've got income protection, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think on the note of worst case scenarios, we always plan for them, but in the majority of cases, they actually don't eventuate. And mm. I'm not saying nothing bad's going to happen in your property journey by any means, but also know that the things that the media pick up and the stories that you see highlighted, maybe even on social media, are usually the worst case scenario stories and they don't happen to everybody. So just keep that in mind as well when you're planning for disaster to strike. It's not always as bad as people may make it out to be. Yeah, totally. There's another comment that says, I've been through this process. Congratulations, you've got this and the anxiety will pass. There'll be times when you'll doubt yourself and and ask, did I do the right thing? In my opinion, it's a yes and the, the freedom and the financial gain. So that that's a, a great reinforcement, isn't it, of, of looking at the, the positives and, and being a realist and, and not just deferring to that negative. This is why I love our community too because – Everyone has varying levels of experience in their own investing in property journey and to hear from someone who's on the other side, I think is really comforting. But, you know, if this is your first time listening to one of our episodes or the first time coming in touch with the My Millennial community, make sure you are part of the Facebook group because there's some gold in there and everyone's so supportive and the conversations that happen on the threads of um, questions is really, really insightful. Absolutely it is. Yeah, for sure. So... I put a post up on the old Instagram and people have come back with some more questions. I'm going to start with uh, an interesting one. And the reason I'm going to start with it is because I've got a client's experiencing the same thing. I'm keen for your thoughts as well, John. Someone said, I'm forced to change employer after conditional approval. Is it going to cause serious issues? So I assume this person has purchased a property. They are employed by ABC employer. Everything's gone through the process. They're waiting until settlement. And now they're with XYZ employer. Is this going to cause any serious issues? Great question. And 
it would be stressful for that to happen while you're waiting on the settlement of a property to occur um, for your uh, circumstances to change with your employer and possibly with your salary as well. Have you had anyone experience this, John? Um, I I sort of have. Um, <laughs> they they saw it coming. They they knew it was coming, and they wanted to get conditional approval first, or ideally wanted to settle by the time they changed jobs. It it didn't um, swipe them in the cheek and and come unexpectedly like this maybe has. But uh, I think conditional approval uh, through to settlement should be pretty straightforward. And I say should, um, it depends on the lender. The lender can do potentially one last check on you just to make sure it's all good for settlement. But in my experience, conditional approval, there is there is still conditions around getting that loan across the line. So we've just got to ask ourselves or, or look at the, the fine print from the lender and say, what are those conditions? And generally, one of those conditions is, are you still employed? So can you prove pay slips? Can you prove um, rental income for this property, depending on what it is? Can you prove X, Y, Z that you showed me two months before when you got the pre-approval? Yeah, I think if you know it's coming up and this is the situation that my client at the moment is going through, and I'd never encountered it in this capacity before, it's actually a situation where you can voluntarily put your hand up to be redundant and then there's going to be um, compulsory redundancies happen in the company Uh and uh, this client has mapped out the timeline in which these will occur so she knows her clear path of buying and settling within a certain time frame to be certain but then there's a gray area as well and the question you know I said and and I would say to anybody who's facing something similar is what do you feel comfortable with because if you don't feel comfortable going into even a purchase knowing there's some uncertainty coming up maybe just wait But if you can go down the path and work out all the worst case scenarios and the most likely case scenario, you can usually be informed enough to make a good decision. Um, And you'd be glad when you pick up the keys to the property because it's always that, you know, is it going to happen? But yeah, it's a tricky one to navigate. Totally is. Yeah. And, And I think someone listening in thinking, well, how can I avoid this happening to me? We've obviously got to look at our, our job stability and we know that we, we can, Something can happen out of the blue which we didn't expect, uh, but but just painting a timeline of our of our life and just knowing well, okay, between uh, getting a pre-approval and settling on a property, we're not going to go out and apply for a personal loan. We're not going to get a car loan. We're not going to quit our job voluntary. Uh, we're not going to do all these things that can disrupt that finance approval for for such an important purchase in our life. Yeah, it really needs to be the focus and keep your broker in the loop of any change that happens along the way. They need to be across it. It shouldn't come as a surprise to them that something's changed in the course between your pre-approval being granted to you and your actual uh, purchase and settlement. Totally. So uh, James Robson asks a very controversial question, how to break up with your mortgage broker. So he put this in the Facebook group um, a few days ago, I believe, and, and it's, uh, it's got quite a lot of commentary surrounding it. So first of all, Emily, have you ever broken up with your mortgage broker? And, and if so, how did you go about it? I haven't, but there has been a circumstance where I had a broker for a particular purchase and then the next purchase, because of a contact through family at the bank, the bank direct was able to offer me something better than any broker could offer me and I had to go through the bank for that purchase. It just didn't make sense to go through a broker. So I still have the broker. 
I haven't broken up with them, but I sort of sidestepped them for this purchase and they understood. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I can only assume a breakup with a broker is kind of like breaking up with your partner, but like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Depends what sort of relationship you've had, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, I don't think it's something like your partner that you do via text or, or just oh, no. uh, say nothing. Uh, that That's my two cents on it. Don't is, ghost. Is, yeah. If, uh, if you've got a good relationship with them, it's the chook and the egg, isn't it? Like if you've got a good relationship with the broker, you're probably not going to break up with them anyway. Mm, so but true. If something's a bit dicey or you're not getting the response you need from the mortgage broker or another mortgage broker has come along and they've they've shown you more, I suppose they've given you more education and care and and, uh, and customer service than your existing broker, then you've. I think you've got to um, do yourself a favour and, and get the best possible team in your corner. So um, I, I think I'm always keen to give someone a second chance, but if there's a pattern of it, then you've got to address it. And I think the best way to do that is um, just know that the, the next mortgage broker is going to be the, the right one for you and not just fl- flicking on and willy-nilly just moving to the next um, team member. But I think you need, in my situation, I would I would have a conversation with them and say, look, this is what I've experienced. Um, this is this is my plans. This is what I'm doing. Um, thanks, thanks for the journey. Have you uh, had the same broker since day dot, or what's your pathway been with engaging no, with brokers? No, and, and um, I was going to add to that is is I haven't had the same mortgage broker, and and I think this would be my third mortgage broker. I think, yeah, yep. but I have been around a little while, Emily. You know. <laughs> So I think that's the first part is understanding that your team members, your professionals in your corner may change over the journey, whether they retire or they just, uh, you lose faith in them or um, something happens and, and you just, you, you, you upgrade in a way. Uh, but the, the first broker that I had actually fell off the face of the earth. There was no mm. correspondence after I'd got that home loan. So to me, there was no customer service follow-up. And I think this is so common. Mm. We, we work so hard to get clients on the front end that they, they can't continually provide that customer service on the back end. So as a result, you, 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 you start to look elsewhere. You start to Google, you start to talk to others, you start to listen to podcasts, oh, they've used this broker, okay, I might try them myself. And all of a sudden, you've, you've broken up with your broker and, and your broker might not even know about it until you've maybe refinanced a loan. Yeah. And that's probably the hardest part is your broker at some point is going to know. <laughs> it's not like you can just, it's not a one-off service where, you know, they've lost the business because they didn't keep in touch and it, you don't need to renew like annually or whatever it might be. They can see that the loan is no longer on their trailable and it's been taken off them. Yeah. So that would be a rude way for them to find out. Unless they, I mean, look, there are circumstances where it might be extremely obvious in the conversations that this isn't working out, you know, Um, and you haven't deliberately said, I am not working with you anymore, but it's gotten to a point where it's like, I'm really finding it hard to work with you or you've really let me down or I'm really disappointed and it wouldn't come as a surprise that that happens. No, it shouldn't. even still, I don't think that would be a nice way for a broker to find out that you've left just by seeing your loan no longer on their books anymore. Yeah, no, it's not the easiest conversation to have and people don't like um, conflict either a lot of the time. So it is Mm. good to to nip it in the bud early and and I suppose – try and avoid all that and, and choose correctly and, and just do enough homework early on to have good conversations with enough to then 
pinpoint and, and choose one. Um, but uh, yeah, quick one, aside from that, property manager versus mm-hmm. mortgage broker. Like I, I seem to tick and flick property managers real quickly. Like there's no problem at all. I don't really have a uh, feel bad for this property manager. Whereas the mortgage broker, it's a totally different story. Is that the same for you? Yeah, it's it's funny you say that. It definitely be my experience as well. When I think a lot of uh, property investors would probably agree with that. I don't know if it's because I feel like I don't know the property manager well enough. Like I've never met my property managers either via Zoom or in person. I've spoken to them on the phone occasionally. But also, we spoke about this recently in an episode I did with a property manager, um, Emma Cullody from Vogue. She was saying that a lot of the time, the investors meet the business development manager of the agency, but they don't ever meet the actual property manager who's going to take over and look after your property. Like they're, they're yeah. two different people. One gets the business, then one looks after the business. So there's a very big disconnect. Uh, and so it kind of is easy to sort of just say, well, I'm not happy, so I'm moving on. Yeah. That, and that's that's tricky. Like that business model is very different, isn't it? Where you've got a BDM that's on the front line, essentially recruiting, but the person who's doing the core work for you, you never meet. Like that's uh, from a customer service point of view, I think that's... Um, yeah, it's maybe why it's it's easy to to move on, isn't it? And also, the new property manager goes and picks up the keys. They do uh, you know a handover from the current one. Like you don't have to be in the middle. You don't have to do anything. No. You just you no. just go. I'm changing and goodbye. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, no love loss. Cool. Let's take a break, and then when we come back, we'll get into some more questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So jumping back in with a question from the old Instagram, it's funny, Instagram, you, people have these random handles, so you don't actually know what their name is, but this person, <laughs> I think maybe Sunny, thoughts on the Perth property market. It's so competitive at the moment. Now, John, I'll be honest, I know nothing about the Perth property market. I live in my Melbourne bubble and I know uh-huh. everything Melbourne and nothing more, but you being yes. the nationwide investor that you are, do you have any insight on Perth? 
Look, I do. And we've just uh, recently put a buyer's agent on the ground in WA. So for anyone reaching out, wanting something in Perth, feel free to reach out to us. But in answer to the question, I concur. It is extremely hot market over there. And I think it's not a speculative market, Perth, but I would say it's it's less consistent in its delivery than maybe a lot of other capital cities. So probably to the question of what do we do when it is such a hot market and and you and I have experienced it as buyers agents, Emily, as to how we navigate through a hot market at any one time when the days on market are like sometimes single figures, like uh, two weeks and it's gone or, or properties under offer the day after the, it's listed and things like that. That's what's happening in Perth at the moment. And for the locals over there, they haven't experienced that for some time. And in a lot of cases, when when mining's down over there, the property prices will retract somewhat and may stay slow for a period of time. Um, I don't. I think that trend is train changing as more diverse industries um propping Perth up as the capital city. But uh, I think at the moment, everything's going really well and prices have been really affordable for a long time and, and the rest of the country's got wind of that. So I think in a hot market, what are the things that we need to do? Well, we need to be on our game. We can't be just looking at properties on the weekend. We we can't be just ringing one agent and just relying on them for listings. Like they're, they're not, in a lot of cases, they're, they're just using their internal database and, and that's it. Um, they list a property and tomorrow it's gone because the internal database knew about it two weeks, three weeks before the, the general public. So uh, we, we, we share the pain in respect to a hot market because we've been through plenty of them in the last couple of years, haven't we? So it's a, a real risk that you end up paying too much for something, especially if it's the type of market that you're in where there's this inflation of price over a, over a 12 months, two-year period, and then all of a sudden it retracts back to maybe 5%, 10% below what that peak was. And, and you've paid top dollar at the peak of the market. And look, without coming across as like a promo here, but more generally in a competitive market, irrespective of John or I, getting a buyer's advocate or a buyer's agent who's on the ground in those markets and can basically get you access before the general public do can really save you a fair bit. But more than anything, it's actually the non-emotional piece of the puzzle to make sure you're not paying too much because you're getting this hype of like, I remember Melbourne 2021, people were just paying whatever it costs to get into the property market. Like they're yeah. just like, I'll give you my kidney if it means I have a house. It's just like <laughs> right. crazy, you know, whereas using a buyer's agent or even just having someone who just has a level head that you can bounce the idea off and make sure you're sense checking it and you're not overpaying is really important because these the markets we see crazy prices and if it does dip you know significantly uh, it can can damage the equity that's in your property totally yeah and and i'm just um i've just pulled up a suburb in perth uh called bassendine so the locals would know bassendine as a suburb uh, we not jump on realestate.com the median time on market which median is obviously yeah, the, the number of days that a property has been listed for sale that falls in the middle of the total number of properties sold over the preceding 12 months. At mm-hmm. the minute, it's sitting at 41 days. So you and right. I, Emily, both know that 41 days is quite a time to sell a property. Like mm. in a hot market, days on market are like 15, 16 days, aren't they, or, yeah. or less, right? So 
some of this data is misleading because it's it's so far behind what's actually happening on the ground. But one um, little bit of uh, of tipsy here today is to jump on and search for your criteria in the suburb you want and see what pops up. So I've just typed in Bassendine and has come up with for all properties in that particular suburb. 69 properties, right? That's all types, any price point, any bedrooms, any car spaces, any land size, etc. If I tick the box that says exclude properties under offer or contract and then go search, it then drops from 69 to 43. So what does that tell mm. me? Well, it tells me that 26 properties out of the 69 are under offer a contract at any one time. So that's, I don't know, my mass isn't that that cool, but let's say it's a third. Yeah. So a third of all properties are under offer at any one time. That's pretty warm, right? If it's 10%, then that's a that's a quite a cool market or less, right? So we've got a third, 33% roughly. I don't know the percentage, but let's go with that. Um, so that's quite a warm market. So it's a good check you can do to get a, a feel of what a particular market or suburb is doing at any one time. And look, I think for the general public to have those parameters to latch onto and get a good indication, because we often forget general public buyers are dipping in at one point in time. So how do they know what's normal? What's normal? What's hot? What's not? Listening to the media is probably not overly helpful. Um, they're usually right. behind on the data for starters, but that's a great sense check to understand what the market's doing. And if less than 10% or 10% and under were sitting under offer, we'd probably say it's it's not that hot. It's not flying away. I think when Melbourne hit its peak, you know, it would be upwards of 50% of properties yeah. were under offer or under contract at that point in time. And and the other thing that Perth uh, has going, or good or bad, is very low auctions that run. So uh, most of it is private treaty. So it, it just means that the, the prices can vary based on the fact that there's no transparency on the day to fall under the hammer and everyone's there in the in in the one location to to bid for that particular property. Yeah, definitely. So in summary, Perth market is hot, it's competitive. Be careful not to overpay for a property. Make sure if you um, can do so, get some advice on board. And if you're running solo, stick to those agents like glue. <laughs> Make sure you're their best yeah. friends and try and get access to things ahead of the, everyone else. Yeah, totally. And just to just to finish on that, I think the other thing is don't just go and buy, like you mentioned, Emily, for the sake of buying because the market's so heated and you're so frustrated and over the whole search, you end up buying on a on a busy road or a massively sloping block or, or um, something that's not ideal. So if it's not ideal now, it's probably going to be not ideal in 20 years' time in a cooling market. Completely agree. And it, the hot market is when we see the non-desirable properties actually achieve okay results, which is probably, funnily enough, a good segue to the next question. I may as well tail onto it there because Hannah has asked, how do you class A, B and C grade stock? Which is quite a timely question. Mm. And you reeled off a couple of things there, John, about what you wouldn't want to see, main roads, sloping block, those aspects. But maybe let's start from what a C grade is up to an A grade uh, property so that people understand. And just to emphasize, C is the worst, A is the best. It's kind of like your grades at school. <laughs> you you yeah. want to be an A plus student. <laughs> yeah. Mine mine went lower than the C at school. But, oh, uh, is it lower like, than a C? <laughs> uh, yeah. You wouldn't know about that I being an A grade student. 
<laughs> no, I, I've gotten a C minus on a science test before, but I didn't. That's as. Wow. Did you have minuses and pluses? Is that how it works? Uh, uh, yeah. No, we did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you get to a yeah. D? <laughs> yeah. Look, a C was a good for me. No, I don't know <laughs> what I've got. Um, that's how much importance there was on it, unfortunately. But any case, let's get back to the, the task at hand. So A-grade, what defines an A-grade property? To me, when I think of A-grade, I think blue chip. I think everyone wants to live there. Everyone that can't afford to live there will try and rent there. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the blue chip. It's the beautiful uh, leafy suburbs with uh, beautiful parks and gardens and they might, um, they might be ocean uh, right nearby. There's, um, there's, there's fantastic schooling. They, they, they can't put a foot wrong in a blue chip suburb. Yeah, I think... A grade has a postcode attached to it, but like what I would say is almost like an A plus grade property is the most premium streets within that premium postcode. Uh, And usually there's only a handful of them. And in some suburbs they're referred to as like the golden mile of that suburb. But definitely an aspect, a view of some sort, amenity, all those things you've listed off. But generally speaking, the best streets within the best suburbs are only like two or three that have the longest hold time in the world because people buy in and they never move out. Never sell. And that that gift that keeps on giving through equity, it just grows at a consistent rate year on year. And and you look at somewhere like... uh, like Bondi in Sydney. So units or houses, doesn't matter. It's, they're increasing in value consistently year on year. Um, there's never any oversupply. It's uh, it's tightly checked, as you said. Um, but I think those with the biggest blocks of land and the biggest number of bedrooms um, get that premium. And uh, But those try and get in at the any price they can to get into those A-grade suburbs. So few and far between around the country, but I must add that you can have, I think, A-grade locations within any town, right, as, as small or large as it can be. So you, you might have a, a regional centre of 20,000 people, but there'll be an A-grade part of town. And again, it's its, its own equivalent of A-grade according to those locals. For sure. And so then dipping down a class into B grade, there's location factors and aspect factors that kind of make it B grade. Like let's take a suburb, for example. Most people know Turak, right? Turak is an A grade suburb in Melbourne. In Melbourne, yep. Yeah. But as there is with every suburb, there are some not great pockets of Turak. Like believe it or not, Turak does have its little golden mile and its golden pockets. But you can say you live in Turak and you might not live on the greatest street, but you still got the postcode, you know? Yeah. So in my mind, B grade is certainly a little bit further from the amenity, potentially a slightly worse aspect, but we're still talking side streets here. We're not talking main road addresses and we're certainly not talking um, small properties. We're talking, you know, decent square meter, even in the apartment space, a decent square metre upwards of 70 for a um, two-bedroom apartment, upwards of 50 for a one-bedroom apartment. Like they're good properties. They're not bad. They're not great. They're just, they're good. Yeah. Okay. So what we're saying is we've got A, B and C suburbs, but we've also got A, B and C within the one suburb, right? And you've just given an example of what you classify B class is within Turak, which 
you think, well, if you get into Turak, it's Turak, so it's it should be A, but where that not not necessarily the case. Yeah, I think there's uh, it's on a macro and a micro level. The gradings uh, apply to both. I mean, your ultimate goal is to get A in both location yes. and accommodation, but uh, that's not always the case. No, as an investor, you go and try and buy. A in both, so the best part of the best suburb, your yields are going to be horrible, but your growth is going to be great. And that's why not everyone can buy uh, in that particular location and that's why everyone's strategy is very much different um, because it's personable to you. But what would be a C-grade property in an A-grade suburb like Turek? I think the first thing that comes to mind is main road address but at the very front, like if you think about apartment blocks, for example, some people say, I'll take a main road address, but only visit the back of the block because I don't want the noise. So a C-grade would be front of the block on the tram line with the noise and also a lack of privacy. Um, you know, people walking past, it's a main road, you sort of have uh, constant traffic. That to me would be a C-grade in an A-grade suburb. Yeah. So generally, uh, not not all the time, but most of the time, it's the lower socio part of a suburb or a lower socio um, within, but also a inferior dwelling location or type. Yeah. Yeah, correct. You know, beyond the scope of of talking about something like an inner city suburb, I think it's something that's slightly removed. Like again, that piece of amenity, a C grade dwelling in my mind is something that's really like kind of out of town. Like it doesn't have, it's kind of in no man's land. It's just not no desirable. No public transport, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, you might be able to have a huge house, but do you have the location factor? Yeah. Okay. So maybe beyond the context of the question, but why would we buy a C-class property or in a C-class location? In my mind, the only reason you would buy a C-class property based on the accommodation is to get the location. Like if you wanted to say, for example, I live in Turak and you want the lifestyle that that suburb has to offer, you might suck it up and live on the main road address with all the noise just to be there. In my mind, that's the only reason that you would do it, but I'm keen to hear why you think people would do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I I don't mind, I suppose, not the novelty, but the, the thought of, oh, I can actually add some value to this property because it might be old and run down and in an inferior location so I can get it cheaper. I might even be able to subdivide it. Uh, the, the, what's the value of the land? Can I get it cheaper? Because not a lot of people want to buy there because they feel, oh, I'm not going to buy there. It's too crappy or lower socio, there are some very good outcomes as a result of doing that, but you've just got to really know your numbers. And and one thing that when I think those C-class maybe suburbs or, or areas is, and even types for, for, for that point, is oversupply. Can mm. we have too many of them in that location because people might lose their jobs easier or, or um, interest rates rise and it affects the lower income earners more. So as a result of that, there's more supply under the market at any one time, or we're, we're building more because it's cheaper to build out there. So there's a lot more variables and, and less secure in your investment when you go and play that game. Yeah, for sure. And oversupply is can be very real. You need to be very careful if there's, usually if something's cheap, it's cheap for a reason. You know, you've got to yes. dig deeper. Now, there was another question in the Facebook group that I actually commented on and said, I will answer this for you. So I better be true to my word because yep. Nick might know where I live or something. I don't know. 
Um, Nick Morris says, for the property experts, how closely do independent property valuers work with the banks? For instance, I've been in the process of refinancing to a Queensland country bank to knock a percent off my mortgage. The house was valued, but it's come in way under both the core logic data and broker's estimation. CBA, which is my current bank's estimation and my own estimation on research of similar properties is about 50 to 60K less. The bank want to proceed, but this pushes me into the LMI zone and they want 5K added for this. So he's paying LMI if he goes into that territory, which of course I've been paying interest on and more money for the bank to earn from me. My broker is waiting to get his hands on the report to see what the go is, but are these valuations really independent or are they getting sneaky little kickbacks somewhere to lower the value to give the bank a little bit extra? That is an interesting question, Nick. <laughs> and first things first, I mean, if there were sneaky little kickbacks going on, that would be on a current affair pretty quick, I reckon. Don't you think? Mm. Well, even more than first things first, he wanted property experts, didn't he? So I don't know if there's any here today talking, but um, <laughs> we'll have a go at it, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a crack. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I suppose my mind doesn't go that way naturally when – when I look at a low val um, or, or a lower val than what a real estate agent's appraised it at because that's quite common. Uh, but what I would naturally do is get a few, few different valuations from other lenders and just see is that actually the price because three different valuations from three different individuals on three different days can produce or will produce three different outcomes. There's, um, there's no two ways about that. Uh, the whole LMI territory, absolutely. The in in a lot of cases, the the best valuation wins your business. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you do you think that way? Like, I I can't see a way where they'd be just um yeah under under the table saying bring it in at this price so we can get higher line. Yeah, it just doesn't like the lenders' mortgage insurance. Yes, it's overinflated. You you pay ten grand for LMI and. It doesn't cost them that as a policy, so I get that side of it. But yeah, if we, uh, I don't know, my mind just doesn't go there naturally. In speaking to, and I'm just trying to think, we must have had a valuer on the show ages ago because we asked the question about how they get, um, how the vows get divvied up for people to go out and do them, and how much information they actually have, and they have minimal because it is to remain independent and to not know the circumstances of the um, customer that's actually. Yeah ultimately lending from the bank, mm. I would be shocked if there was any incentive for a valuer to have a certain value written on a property. Um, yeah. That seems very, yeah, that just doesn't seem right to me. One thing I would say though, Nick mentioned that the core logic data and the broker's estimation um, as well as CBAs has come in different. I think in my opinion, nothing beats an in-person valuation. No. The CoreLogic one, I get CoreLogic data for all the properties we buy and none of them, if I relied on them, I wouldn't buy a property because they're never, no. they're never 100% accurate and not dissing CoreLogic because it's a great resource, but it's with a grain of salt, you know. Um, yeah. The broker's valuation, I'd love to know. And did CBA actually do a physical in-person valuation or just did a desktop that actually comes from CoreLogic anyway? So Yeah, that's right. You know. and, and sometimes a desktop is enough to get it over the line when you're purchasing. Mm. You just want it on purchase price and, and on with your job. But when you're trying to get equity out, the valuation is critical, isn't it? So you, your highest value is generally the winner. But yeah, and, and chatting to 
Eliza Owen from CoreLogic on the show um, a few weeks ago. Check it out if you haven't already listened. She spoke about that valuation process and said basically the valuations on each property are updated daily according to their algorithms and their checks based on what's actually sold in the area. So if in Nick's example, if he's got a three-bedroom house on 500 squares and a three-bedroom house has just sold on 300 squares for a lower price, that's going to affect his valuation because they're basing it on um, three-bedroom houses in that particular suburb. And, and they, yes, there's different algorithms that change over time, but yeah, be aware that, uh, as, as you said, Emily, it's a grain of salt. It's a starting point, but then yeah, go and get yourself two or three valuations and, and don't show any real loyalty towards one particular lender. Yeah, for sure. I think the I think the problem is for Nick is that he wants to go with this particular lender. So it's unusual that uh, the one lender would do multiple valuations. You can contest the valuation though, and it's what I in this situation I would recommend. So thanks for submitting your questions for today's episode. We always love hearing from our community. If you aren't yet in the Facebook group, jump on in My Millennial Money and just hashtag property on anything you want us to answer or tag John or myself and we will get to it eventually. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, we would love it uh, if you could leave a little review to let us know what you like about it. If you have feedback, feel free to reach out. Um, We're always open to hearing any new ideas that you have for the show. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Career, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily, and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Shepherd Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.